Well, hello. My name is Nick. I'm your pastor here at 10am. My welcome to you, especially if you're new or visiting. We love having you. Some of you are new and you're thinking, what the heck have I walked into? Eschatology, right? A weird series to begin with, um, but don't be confused. It's not as daunting as it sounds. Eschatology, eschaton, the last. Ology, the study of things. We're just thinking about those things that come at the end of times. We're talking about life after death. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about coming face to face with the living God. We're talking about interpreting the book of Revelation. And most importantly, we're asking the hard questions like, is there coffee in heaven? The answer is obviously yes. It is the goodness of God in earth and it's going to be in... Anyways, I want to ask, how do you feel? How do you feel? Are you ready? Are you ready to dive into something as weighty as eschatology? Now, this could be a series of theological lectures where we have to consider big, lofty principles and difficult Bible passages, and we kind of keep it out here as if we're trying to build some like Bible framework or trying to work out some things that we believe from out there, or this series could be a life-altering, heart-softening, faith-stoking moment for us to lift our eyes off this temporary little world that we live in and get a glimpse of eternity, to get a sense of the infinite God who has so much more for us than we could ever imagine. Eschatology matters. Let me tell you why. If you've ever sat with someone who's lost a child or has lost someone they loved far too soon. If you have someone in your family who, who suffers from a disability, that was my biggest wrestle when I first became a Christian, my sister who's disabled and how God fits into that. When you have loved ones who don't know Jesus, or to get a little bit more personal, when you find yourself in a season of life where you feel despair, emptied of all hope, when you start to wrestle with the brokenness of your own body and the pain that can happen physically or or mentally, when you start to wrestle with the brokenness of this world, when you feel purposeless and you're unsure why you even exist, that is what eschatology is for. Yes, big, lofty truths, hard Bible passages, but we are getting to the meaning of your existence and the future that God has for you. I mean, I could sit down because Stephen Karras have already covered it, but God has so much for us. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are far, far better things ahead than what we leave behind, right? Can I get an amen from someone? Come on, amen. God has so much more for us than we have right here in this world. And I think that eschatology is something that we desperately need to hear in this world that we live in right now. Let me give you three reasons why. One, our society, our Western society that we live in, is uniquely, I think, incapable of wrestling with death and grief. We, we are not good at handling the death of those around us. In fact, we kind of try and push it out of our minds as much as we can and pretend like it doesn't exist until suddenly its shadow falls upon us and everything comes down. And then when we sit in that place of grief, we don't really know what to do because we weren't prepared for this moment. Just look at the way that we pursue youthfulness above everything. Whether it's a fitness program, your Botox, your fad diet, your anti-aging cream, your Instagram filters, we we prize this idea of staying young, enjoying life, and when that falls apart, we have no answer. 
We need to see the God who has more than this world. Reason two, our natural state of being here right now is comfort. We we love to be comfortable. We love to have things that are stable and firm and secure in this world. We love to put aside our worries and make sure that this world is nice. If we have kids, our greatest goal is that our, our kids would be comfortable and happy, that we can protect them from suffering and difficulty. And I think that breeds within the church a lack of urgency, a lack of passion and zeal and a sense of eternity to come. We, we forget that this is only a moment in the grand scheme of all eternity and there are lost souls that need the salvation of Christ that we need to do more than just forge a comfortable life in this world but actually put aside this world and pursue the treasures of heaven. Thirdly, the New Testament, if you go and read through it, It's actually saturated, and I mean saturated, with language of eternity to come. We we tend to focus so much on the present realities of the gospel, and those things are good. Believe in Jesus, and your your sins will be washed. Your shame will be taken away. You, You will have a promise of life to come, sure, but right now you can have a relationship with God. All of those things are good. But but as Steve said before, the early church was gripped by this sense of Jesus' return. They believed in the present realities of the gospel, but where was their hope? Their hope was in the future to come. They they were too busy looking ahead to what God would bring that they weren't going to focus on forging a nice little life here. They were just going to spend their lives in the service of Jesus. Those are three reasons why I think we need eschatology today, and I think it's going to be a life-changing series. Is anyone with me? Yeah, you guys aren't comfortable with talking out loud, but I'm going to make you do it. That's fine. We've got five weeks ahead of us. Today, we're going to look at the return of Christ. Nice and easy, little intro. Next week, we're going to look at living in the last days. Week three, we're going to talk about the final judgment, the reality of hell. Week four, we're going to talk about resurrection and the rewards to come. And in the final week, week five, we're going to talk about heaven and hope. I think this series is going to push us. I think it's going to lead us into some deep waters, but I want to challenge you. Don't let it be an exercise in intellect alone, but let it be something that changes your perspective on this world. I'm going to pray. We're going to read the Bible. David's going to come up and read the first reading, and then I'll get back up and we'll get into the return of Christ. Let me pray. God, we believe that you have so much ahead of us. Your your life-changing Gospel is not just to bring some joy to these few years we live on this earth, but it is to bring wholeness and restoration to all of existence for eternity. God, open our eyes, expand our vision, soften our hearts, help us to fall more in love with Christ and to live more obediently to him every single day. Amen. David's going to come and bring our first reading. Good morning. Our first reading is from Mark chapter 13, starting from verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. 
Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and he will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to, the, to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch.
The second reading is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, commencing um, on well, page 1019, 2019, commencing at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Perhaps you were with me before, you know, eschatology, maybe it's not going to be dry and boring, maybe it's going to be great, and then you read Mark 13, and you were kind of like, okay, this is getting weird again, an abomination of desolation, and all of these predictions of the end times. We'll get there, but I want you to remember that at the center of all of eschatology, and especially today, as we think about the return of Christ, there's a single word that characterizes it for Christian people, and that is hope. Hope. There is hope to come. There is a conclusive moment when the old will pass away with all of its pain and all of its suffering and when newness will come. But let me begin by kind of positioning us where we stand in the scriptures, where we stand in redemptive history. On the one hand, we've got Jesus who came into the world, who lived amongst us, who died, who was buried, who rose again and has ascended into heaven, right? That's the gospel that we believe in. That's happened. And then you come over here to the end where God promises to make all things new, to bring justice to a broken world, to to make a whole new heavens and an earth, to remake our bodies and bring us to be with God forever, right? Those are kind of like the two poles and we're sitting in the middle. We stand between the the beauty of the cross and the beauty of the resurrection, and we live in the kind of groaning, waiting period, which we don't like, right? There's pain, there's difficulty, there's suffering in this moment. We live in what has often been called the now, but not yet. The now, but not yet. In Mark 1.15, when Jesus declares what his ministry is going to all be about, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When Jesus came into the world, the kingdom of God came with him. And it's here. It's right now. It's it's declared in his death and resurrection. It's a now reality. We aren't waiting for the gospel to come. It's come and been proclaimed before us, right? Jesus has died. He has risen again. And yet, we still haven't had that kingdom come in all of its power, right? We're still wrestling with with sickness and cancer and suffering and war and injustice. We live with this tension, the now but not yet. Even within ourselves, we know that in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But yet I still sin. I still fall into old habits. I'm still not the man that I want to be. 
but there's a promise from God that he'll make me new. We live in this, this time in between. Does that make sense? We live in the tension, the now but not yet. If you know anything about history, Second World War, we have this thing called D-Day. It was June 16th, 1944. And it was the moment that we look back and say, this, that was the decisive moment at which World War II was won. You know, victory has come. There's no hope for the, the Nazi forces to make a comeback. It's done. World War II is over. And yet, there's another day after D-Day called VE Day, Victory of Europe Day, where that's when the fighting actually stopped. The guns stopped sounding. People stopped dying. And in between these two days, the victory had been proclaimed, and yet people are still suffering and dying, even though victory is coming. One of my greatest heroes of the faith is named Bonhoeffer, and he died on April 9th, 1945, where he was hung at the Flossenburg concentration camp. And it was after D-Day, but it was before VE-Day. He lost his life, even though the war was over. And that's just a picture of what we're standing in. Jesus' death and resurrection proclaims victory. There is no question. Satan has been conquered your future is sealed. Your hope is, is rock solid. No one can take away from you the reality of the gospel. But we're not at VE Day yet. We're still fighting a spiritual battle. We're still standing firm in this moment when we're getting beaten and, and hit from all sides. We're still pressing after God even though we aren't there yet. And so our victory is guaranteed, but it's not yet received. When is it going to be received? When Jesus returns, the return of Christ, the return of Christ. This is literally what has defined the church across the ages, living in this tension and looking ahead to the moment when Jesus will return. Now, I've just got three points on what it means for Jesus to return, okay? The first one is this, the return of Christ is certain. The return of Christ is certain, but it's kind of unknown. Right? It's, it's certain. It's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. But Jesus says, if you just re- keep reading a little bit in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. No one's going to know about it. No one's going to know when it's coming. Even Jesus doesn't know when it's coming. Only God the Father knows. There's a guy called Harold Camping. He predicted the day that Jesus would return 12 times. Who's believing that guy after the first time? Right? He gets to his 12th time and he predicts that it's going to happen on a date in 2011. And then he dies in 2013, not ever seeing Jesus return. I just hope that he and Jesus are chuckling along in heaven together. I hope hope there's some fun there. But I don't know if you've heard about this. I think it's a bit of a a, a myth, but I like to believe that it's true. There used to be an amphitheater at Balmoral. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? In the 1920s, there was an amphitheater on the north side of Balmoral. It's where that sort of like red brick apartment block is, where you sit there going, why aren't there balconies on that building? It's it's Balmoral. Come on. Anyways, there was an amphitheater there, and rumor has it that when it was built, it was built by a woman who was selling tickets as a front row seat to see Jesus return, that he was going to walk along the waters between the two heads. And rumor has it, that's how she paid for the amphitheater, which she owned, was that you'd get a front row seat to see Jesus return and come back. I don't know if it's true, but I'm sure you've heard stories of people trying to predict the day that Jesus is going to come back. Well, the reality is that we don't know when. There's a lot of confusion about the the stuff that's going to happen before Jesus returns. The only certainty we have is that it will happen. In Mark chapter 13, which we read before, it says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, when we read Mark 13, it's confusing. 
Like, it, it really is. It's filled with all of this, this crazy language and terrible signs of things to come. Maybe you've read Revelation before. You've probably got a couple chapters in and kind of freaked out a little bit and maybe threw it away because you don't know what to do with it. Um, there's some chapters in 1, 1 and 2 Thessalonians that talk about the day of the Lord and the man of lawlessness and all of these confusing concepts around what will happen as we uh, come close to the return of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to try and unpack them with my particular view. I just want to help you kind of get the lay of the land and understand how people sort of understand that and, re- and hopefully ground us somewhere. So there, there are three kind of main interpretations of when Jesus will return and how to read those tricky passages. It's premillennialism. You know, just bear with me, I promise. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. You, know, you hear what I'm saying? They're just, they're just approaches to interpreting the Bible in these difficult moments. The reason they're called millennialisms is because in Revelation 20, there's this key chapter. It talks about a thousand years when Jesus returns. And really, your, your, your framework to understand all of these end time passages kind of derives from that interpretation of that chapter. So we're kind of talking about what do we do with the 1,000 years? That's kind of what's happening. So let me just quickly describe what each of those are, and maybe it'll help you as you try and wrestle with these ideas. The premillennials is kind of like your classic example of the rapture. You know, has anyone ever watched those videos where like all the Christians suddenly disappear because they got raptured into heaven? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And the pilot disappears and the plane goes down. It's like, oh no, does anyone know how to fly a plane? No. That's, that's kind of the, the caricature of premillennialism. It's actually rigorously argued from Scripture. It has a lot of theological backing. Most of the U.S. tends to fall into this place of Christians who believe this sort of approach to the end times. Basically, what it means is the thousand years talked about in Revelation 20, we sort of read it a little bit more literally. So, at the return of Christ, there's going to be a public rapture where Christians all disappear. There's going to be a resurrection of all the dead Christians, and they're all going to go back to be with Jesus as he reigns over the earth for a thousand years. And that's before, at the end of those thousand years, some more little stuff will happen, and that's then when everything will be made new. Does that make sense? So it's like a thousand years, Jesus comes back, and all of this sort of stuff happens, and then there's a thousand years of Jesus reigning on earth, and then boom, it's all, it's all perfect, right? That's premillennialism. Postmillennialism is where we take the thousand years as a figurative thing. We still read it as truth, but we understand that it's not necessarily talking about a physical moment where Jesus returns and there's a thousand years. It's more of a figurative language to describe the age that we're currently living in now. What characterizes this view is that right now, things are moving towards perfection. Everything's being restored. Life is coming towards perfection as Jesus intended, and it's happening as the Great Commission gets fulfilled. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's happening. People are becoming Christians, and as people become Christians, they become leaders. They become people that change society and culture, and we're slowly but but certainly moving towards a moment when Jesus returns, finishes the work, everything's perfect. So there's sort of like the two poles on either side. In the middle is where I would sit. It's what we call amillennialism, very similar to post-millennialism, a figurative 1,000 years. Scripture is teaching us truth. Revelation has a lot of truth to teach us, but it's actually apocalyptic literature that's teaching it in a certain way. So it's this 1,000 years that represents the moment that we live in now, but rather than things kind of building up to perfection slowly through our works, it's a moment of now but not yet where we stand in the difficulty of suffering, 
We believe in the truth that, that God will save people as we preach the gospel, and we sit here waiting for the return of Christ. So as we sort of read Mark, Mark 13, all the abomination of desolation, all that sort of stuff, as you read through Revelation, there's heaps of truth to be understood about this moment that we live in right now as we await Christ. So in your Bible studies in Connect Group, you're going to dig into those details and see what is it that we are experiencing as we await Jesus. It's not this mystical thing that you need to fear. It's describing our moment as we wait for Jesus. Does that make sense? Kind of. (laughs) It's okay if you didn't catch each of those categories. But it's a moment where we just need to stop and go, the return of Christ may be unknown. There might be some details that don't make sense, but it's certain. It's happening. He is coming back. Now, the second thing is that the return of Christ is bodily. He's not just going to come back spiritually and come and make our hearts feel good. He's going to come down visibly. If you've got 1 Thessalonians open still in front of you, verse 16 says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When Jesus was resurrected, he came to his disciples and hundreds of other people in his body. There were holes in his hands and his feet. There was a wound in his side where they stabbed him with the spear. He, he was a man risen from the dead and to this day remains a man risen from the dead. Now, in some ways he was different. He managed to walk into a closed and locked room somehow and nobody knows how he got in there. And so you're like, well, is he a ghost? I don't know. But then there's all these other sections that really unpack what it was that he was, was like. He explicitly stands before his disciples in Luke 24 and says, I'm not a ghost, touch me, touch my body. He sits in Luke 24 again and he takes a piece of broiled fish. Who wants to eat bro- Anyways, he takes a piece of broiled fish and he eats it in their presence to show them that I'm one, I'm one with you. Like I'm still a human, I'm still a man. John 20, Mary's in the garden after her Lord has died and she hears his voice as he, he says, Mary, and he turns and she recognizes him because of the way that he spoke to her. And then later in John 20 is the famous story of Thomas, doubting Thomas, where he says, I won't believe until I touch the wound. And Jesus comes to him and he says, touch it. He's like, I don't wanna touch it. He's like, touch it. He makes him touch it to believe that that this is truly Jesus, the one who rose from the dead. And so we need to believe that he's still alive as a man. Yes, he is the God of all creation, but he's also the man that stepped into this world and died for our sins. Why? Because at one point he will physically come down in his body. Do you believe that? Do you know that there is a moment that that will separate history before Jesus' return, after Jesus' return? At some point, we will hear the loud command of an archangel, that there'll be a trumpet that resounds across every little country and and town across the whole earth that announces that Jesus is returning. And then we will look to the sky and see a physical Jesus coming down with the clouds of heaven. It's hard to try and picture, but it's a reality that we will all experience. And it says that Jesus is gonna gather us up Anyone who knows him and calls him Lord and Saviour will come alongside this Jesus as he returns, as he brings in the new season of life to come. And that leads us to our last point, my final point, and this is where it gets good. The return of Christ is our glory. The return of Christ is our glory. Verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. After that, 
We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's like when my little girl Addie comes home from preschool with me and we open the door and she sees Beck, Beck's face for the first time. She goes, mommy, 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 mommy. She's, it's like she's meeting her mum for the first time. She's just so excited to be reunited with her mum. It's like a video, you know, seeing those videos of people who have spent their entire lives deaf but there's been new technology that means they can resolve their hearing. And you see someone listen to sounds for the first time and they just start weeping with joy at an experience they've never had before. You will meet Jesus face to face. You're going to see him in the flesh. He's not going to be this distant spiritual reality, this idea. He's going to be right there with you and he's going to look at you and love you. Are you ready to meet your saviour? This is going to be incredible. This is, this is a given as a word of hope. You look at verse 13. It says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. This is a moment of hope where when you see Jesus face to face, you can just imagine that he's going to look at you with the most brilliant understanding in his eyes. He's going to look at you and just say, I've seen everything that you've been through. I know what you, you endured for my sake. I know the pain that you experienced. I know the suffering that you went through. I know the brokenness. I'm here now. I'm here now. Don't worry. I'm with you. It's all going to be okay. Is that where your hope is? Is your hope found in something small and temporary in this world? Maybe I can fix the problems I have at work. Maybe I can get a, you know, a decent drug that'll solve my depression. Maybe I can X, Y, Z. Or is your hope when you're going to stand with Jesus face to face and realize everything is going to be made new? Everything is going to be made perfect. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.17 with me. The very end, we'll meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with the Lord forever. It's hard to get our heads around forever, but it's more like the single grain of sand on the beach marks this world that we live in now, and we have every other sand grain to live and experience with Jesus. It's like this moment we live in is just a single star among the hosts of heaven as we get to spend all eternity with our Saviour when Jesus returns, it marks the gateway into perfection. We're no longer going to see in part. We're going to see in full. We're no longer going to be beaten down by injustice. We're going to be restored to perfection. We're no longer going to be wrestling with our own brokenness, the brokenness of our bodies and the things that happen in our life. It's all going to be made new and perfect. You will be made new and perfect. It's like a, a, a child that's lost in the world. Like I got lost at Wonderland when I was five, the most terrifying experience of my life. But when I finally turned a corner and saw my dad, it all just melted into the background. I was home and I was safe. That's what it is to come and understand the return of Jesus. He is going to enfold you into his arms and bring you home. He knows everything that you're going through now and he's with you now, but there is a day coming when he will see you, he will love you, and he will take you to be with him forever. So what do we do? I'll make this quick. We're going to live every day in the light of Christ's return. We've got to, we've got to wake up out of autopilot church. We've got to stop 
living as if this is the world that matters. We've got to start looking ahead to eternity. We've got to know that even though we don't know the day, there's a day that Jesus is coming. It might be tomorrow. It might be in a year. It might be after our death. I don't know, but it's coming. And that's the moment that we live for. We need to take hold of the reality that people need the gospel. There's a day coming when Jesus returns and we need to see people who are resting in Him, not resting in themselves. We need to feel that weight, that, that urgency. We need to stop um, wallowing in our, the depth of our brokenness and instead hoping for restoration to come. Just like Jesus describes Himself as the light of the world, we're not fumbling around in darkness anymore. He's illuminated the room because we know what is coming. We know where we're going. This is what the early church was like. They got it. Stephen, in Acts 7, when he's being martyred for his faith, he, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knows that Jesus is there, and he says, Jesus, take me to be with you. Polycarp, an early Christian in about 160 AD, was 86 years old, and they were going to kill him. He says, 86 years I have served him, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? Is Jim Elliot, who was martyred on the mission field, whose famous quote is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And so verse, chapter four, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. The, the encouragement we give to each other as we live in the Christian community ought to be like, look to Jesus. He's coming back. I know you're going through brokenness. Let's not try and create a therapeutic church where we make everyone feel good and be like, don't worry, your problems aren't that bad. Let's acknowledge the weight of our difficulties and brokenness and look to Jesus in them and let our faith be refined. Let our vision of Him expand. Instead of trying to forge a comfortable life here, let's look to eternity to come. Let's encourage one another as Jesus returns. The return of Jesus is certain. It's coming. So let's live in light of it. Now, we're going to sing, we're going to stand up and sing, the band's going to join, but I've got this prayer that I found. It's an ancient prayer from the Valley of Vision. It's beautiful. Let's stand up. I'd love us to pray this prayer together just to kind of internalize the return of Jesus as we come. All right, we'll go from the start. I don't know that that's the start, but I'll start praying and we'll hope that it comes. All right. Are we there? You were incarnate is the first one. Cool. All right, I'll just pray it. You were incarnate, suffered, rose, ascended for my sake. Your departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Your word, your promises, your sacraments show your death until you come again. That day is no horror to me, for your death has redeemed me. Your spirit fills me, your love animates me, your word governs me. I've trusted you, and you have not betrayed my trust waited for you and not waited in vain. You will come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul by a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the stars in their courses and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal immortality, this natural body, a spiritual body, this dishonored body, a glorious body, this weak body, a body of power. I triumph now in your promises as I shall do in their performance. For the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, 
the sins of abusing you, of disobeying your word, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, employment and enjoyment for your elect. O God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. Amen.